I know I don't need to tell you all what today is, uh, besides the fact that it's Ash Wednesday. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, especially you guys remember it was Valentine's Day. I would like you to do me a favor when you get home tonight. Uh, if you have a wall calendar hanging in your house, or maybe it's a desk calendar, I would like you to go look at your calendar and see what's written down for the 14th. And the reason why I ask that is, is because what I've noticed on my calendars and a lot of other calendars I've come across, Valentine's Day is on there. Um, but in the event maybe of one of those generic calendars that don't list any holidays, I would guess that maybe your wife or your mother wrote it on there so that you didn't forget. The reason why I want you to look at it is I want you to see if Valentine's Day is the only thing that's listed on your calendar at home. Because I have very rarely come across uh, both designations, both holidays. And I'm kind of curious if maybe uh, what has gotten lost in uh, the observation of this February 14th is, while well, a lot of people do know it's a day that talks about love, I wonder if many aren't missing the point of just how much love it's actually talking about. It's this strange occurrence where we have these two holidays that coincide. And I'm also wondering if maybe the calendar makers uh, had that sneak up on them the way it snuck up on me. Uh, this doesn't happen very often. Uh, the last time it happened was in 2018. You know, I think, well, six years ago, no big deal. But the last time it happened before that was 1945. No, yeah, 45. I did get that date right. Uh, so it doesn't happen that often. So this is an unusual situation. And besides the fact that I have a sense maybe the calendar makers decided, well, let's go with one or the other, you're probably finding, like I am, that a lot of calendars are no longer listing a lot of the holidays, and especially the Christian holidays. So I'm just curious, uh, when you get home tonight, just give it a quick look if you remember. And just take note. Yeah, huh. uh, they got the one or, her, or maybe not the other. Part of the reason why I bring this up is because it is uh, an opportunity for us to celebrate both holidays. Both Valentine's Day, which celebrates uh, the human love with which God has blessed us, but then also Ash Wednesday, where we get to celebrate the divine love that God gives us. So for the rest of this evening's study, what I like to do is, is kind of make the point, you see the theme on your worship folder, uh, the value of death, and, and we don't often think of death in that way. But uh, I'd like us to probe that idea just a little bit tonight and uh, see how actually these two holidays very much coincide with each other. So first what I want to do is, is show you the origins of the Valentine celebration. Every year on the 14th of February, we celebrate Valentine's Day. Most people celebrate by giving a card to someone special they care about. Or by giving gifts like chocolate and flowers. And that's why St. Valentine is known as patron saint of love. Valentine was a Roman priest and doctor who lived in the 3rd century. Around that time, the Roman Emperor Claudius Gothicus banned Roman soldiers from getting married. Gothicus loved war and spent most of his time fighting on the edges of the empire. He believed that marriage distracted his soldiers from war and that made them soft. But Valentine was brave and stood up for the soldiers helping them to get married in secret. Although this was a kind act, it was very risky. For many years, Valentine also worked in Roman hospitals. He spent his days treating patients with terrible war wounds and diseases like plague and smallpox. And his nights, performing secret marriages for grateful soldiers in love. But Gothicus soon found out about Valentine's secret weddings. He was furious and had Valentine arrested and thrown in jail. 
Now in prison, Valentine couldn't help the soldiers anymore. The story goes that he was placed under the watchful eye of Asterius, the jailer. Asterius only believed in Roman gods and didn't like Christians like Valentine at all. Asterius had a daughter called Julia who was blind. He challenged Valentine to pray to his Christian god and restore her eyesight. So, Valentine placed his hands gently on Julia's eyes, prayed to God and suddenly, she could see again. Asterius was shocked. As a thank you, he freed Valentine and all the Christians in prison. But Emperor Gothicus soon found out about Asterius' change of heart. Even angrier than he was before, he announced that Asterius and Valentine would both die. Before he was taken to be executed, Valentine wrote a goodbye letter to Julia. He signed the letter, From your Valentine. It was February the 14th, and so the letter became the very first Valentine's Day letter in history. The story of St. Valentine was passed down through the centuries hmm. and is even featured in the work of the famous English poets Geoffrey Chaucer in the 1300s hmm. and William Shakespeare over 200 years later. When postage stamps were introduced in the 19th century, people were able to send letters and cards cheaply, reliably and anonymously, which means the person receiving the letter doesn't know who sent it. It became so popular that factories all over the world had to begin producing millions of Valentine's cards each year. And that's why, on the 14th of February, we celebrate Valentine's Day by writing cards to our loved ones, just like St. Valentine did all those years ago. How many of you knew the origins of Valentine's Day? It's kind of one of those forgotten histories. Um, have you ever heard the phrase St. Valentine's Day Massacre? Okay, well it's talking about the, the slaughter of the Christians on that day by the Roman Emperor because of what you just saw there. Uh, and even if you are familiar with that history, what a lot of people uh, really uh, understand or they don't put the two and two together is at the very same time the origins of Valentine's Day were coming into existence, so was the season of Lent. Now I don't have a clip for that, but we do have that insert for you. So I'm going to encourage you to take these home and read them through on your leisure. Uh, and that will kind of just brush you up on the history of, well, why do we do this Ash Wednesday thing? And, and why do we set away aside six weeks during the year in order to honor our Lord's passion, his suffering? Uh, and, and there's a lot of history built into that. And even what we do today tries to honor that history without, if you will, uh, um, maybe burdening ourselves too much with some of the human customs that have become part of it. Uh, for a time, the use of the ashes kind of fell into disuse in the Protestant church because there was such a, uh, a wrong connotation with it. Uh, we've reintroduced it. More and more churches are using it because it is meant to be a sign of, of sorrow over our sins and the need for our Lord to actually come here and make payment for our sins. The collision of these two holidays actually then offer us this opportunity to reflect on something we don't normally think that death actually has value. And so what I'm going to do is simply take you back to the first time those words you heard tonight, dust you are, and to dust you will return, the first time God spoke those words, and it was spoken to Adam. Of course, it was after he ate from the one tree of which he was not supposed to eat, and rebelled against his creator. Uh, and as follow-up to that, God said, now you are going to turn back into the very substance from which I created you, the dust of the 
earth. But there's a second activity that takes place that sometimes is glossed over. After Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the tree they weren't supposed to eat of, then in Genesis 3 we have this little section where God says, you know what? We're going to have to kick them out of this beautiful paradise. And it wasn't an act of punishment. It wasn't an act of uh, animosity towards them. It was actually an act of love. And I'm not sure we can always understand that. And part of it has to do with our relationship with death. We hate death. Uh, we abhor the death of our loved ones. We're frightened of death because it's not natural to us. It's not what we were created for. And so oftentimes we don't see the value of death. But God explains it to us. He could not allow Adam and Eve into the garden to go and eat from the other tree, the tree of life. Because had they eaten from the tree of life, after they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, they would have lived forever as sinners. So as much as we hate death, a far more terrible uh, outcome for human beings would have been not ever having an escape plan or path out of this broken world and away from all of the struggles. Can you imagine spending eternity struggling with God? Can you imagine spending eternity fighting with each other? Can you imagine spending eternity living in this broken, corrupt world? By the end of each day, we would have prayed. We would have moaned and groaned, Lord, please take me out of this place. And so while death is not a comfortable subject for any one of us, the truth of the matter is, aside from promising to send us a Savior who would rescue us from eternal death, it was a very loving act of God to allow for physical death so that we could actually go from this form of living death into a true form of living as God created us. What I'd like to do then is, if you would, focus on the words where Jesus himself adds value to death. And it's a different kind of value than one that we have in the Genesis account, where there God the Father made that pronouncement. Our Lord also offers us value in this death, but in a different way, in a different garden, through a different form of sacrifice. And that is our lesson tonight. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. What I'd like to do is back up uh, just a little bit of amount of time from when Jesus spoke those words uh, to the weeks leading up to uh, the Passion Week when Jesus finally suffered and died to pay for the sins of the entire world. If we back up just a little bit, we find Jesus involved in performing many amazing acts, miracles. And he was also very busy teaching the people God's love. Uh, and it was so different than what the religion of their day was teaching. And it was in such a different way than how the religious teachers were actually delivering those messages to the people. So much so that the uh, people started to really like Jesus a whole lot more than they liked their religious leaders. And of course, natural reaction is envy, jealousy, and ultimately hatred. So they started to come up with this plan, this plot. How do they get rid of Jesus? And they developed this plan to kill him, thinking that that somehow would solve all their problems. Of course, you and I know it didn't. In fact, it made them all the worse. And as time goes on, we see exactly how this plan fully comes together, because right before the final week of Jesus' life, before he dies on the cross, he comes to the city of Jerusalem, and he stays where he typically would stay, in the little village of Bethany, just outside of Jerusalem, at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. On this occasion, while he's there, they're throwing him a banquet. The reason for the banquet is because Jesus had raised Lazarus back to life. That's an earlier episode in the Gospel of John, where Lazarus was terribly sick and ultimately died. Of course, the Lord shows up, tells Lazarus to come out of the grave, and he does. 
Imagine the buzz that created amongst the people. Not only did this man teach differently than the rest of the world, he had the abilities that nobody else had. And so he became more popular, and the religious leaders, in essence, were more and more unliked. Thus, the plan to kill Jesus. It was on this day of this banquet that the final piece of that murder plan comes together. While there, Mary comes and anoints the feet of Jesus with some very expensive perfume. Of course, the disciples are with Jesus, and there's that one disciple, Judas Iscariot, the one who would eventually hand him over to the Jewish leaders. He's watching all this, and he's kind of disgusted with Mary, what he refers to as wasting this perfume. And he comes up with this idea, well, she should have sold it. Money should have been given to the poor. As John writes his commentary on this, he suggests that's not the reason why Judas was so concerned about uh, the wasting of this perfume. Uh, he didn't care about the poor. He was a greedy man. He was the treasurer for the disciples. He held the money uh, for this group of people, and so any more money put into that bag, he would certainly have found it much more easy and convenient to dip into that to satisfy his own greedy desires. Well, Jesus turns to Judas and says, leave her alone. She's one of the few people who gets what I'm doing. This anointing is to honor me for my burial. She knew Jesus had come to die to pay for the sins of the whole world. Judas didn't get that. And this kind of public shaming, if you will, was a turning point for Judas. After that, he turns away from Jesus. He goes and meets with religious leaders. And of course, most of you know this. He offers his services to somehow hand Jesus over uh, to them so that they could take care of them all at once. Now, so you understand exactly the timing on this, it was only a, a short time after, on that following Sunday, that Jesus had his victorious ride into the city of Jerusalem. We honor that event, we call it Palm Sunday. It's the last Sunday of the season of Lent, and it commemorates that victorious ride into the city. And even that event ticked off the religious leaders. It's seemingly harmless, but the people thronged to Jesus. Even those people who didn't really know Jesus, they wanted to get close to him and find out what he was about. They showed great adoration for him. They, they had heard about this Lazarus event, and they wanted to, to meet him, get to know him, see if this guy was really as different and as, as outstanding and amazing as, as what they had heard. And that angered the, the religious leaders all the more. They feel frustrated, and so this was, if you will, now the springboard into the plotting for the week. And all week long, they try to trip Jesus up. All week long, they look for opportunities to quietly arrest him and get rid of him. All week long, they were hoping Judas would find just that pivotal moment where somehow they could just sweep Jesus aside and be done with all this. Well, it didn't happen until later that week. We know how that goes. Monday, Thursday evening, they're in the upper room. Judas leaves, goes and coordinates with them, and once they get to the Garden of Gethsemane, um, that's when it all goes down. But there's something interesting uh, relating to this event. All of those people were in Jerusalem as visitors, uh, most of my, I should say, is because this was a festival week. Sunday started that festival, a week-long celebration, which ended with the greatest festival of their church year, the Passover. So there were a lot of people where the news of Jesus was now finally being able to put sight to what they had heard. There was one special group of people that actually uh, were there for that feast that specifically made a request to meet with Jesus to actually be introduced. They're re simply referred to as the Greeks, so they're Gentile believers that had come to Jerusalem. Apparently they'd never met him before, uh, and obviously they, they were really eager to meet him. So they go talk to Philip, one of the disciples, and say, hey, could you, you know, facilitate the introductions? 
For some reason, Philip didn't feel qualified to do that. So he goes and talks to Andrew, the brother of Peter, and asks, hey, would you help me uh, get these guys to go and meet with Jesus? And so together, Philip and Andrew, uh, with this little squadron of Greek people, go to Jesus and ask him about uh, an opportunity to chit-chat. Now, our Lord, I love how he does things, and, and it, it, sometimes it's just so mind-boggling. Uh, do you want to speak to these Greek people? He doesn't give them a yes or no answer. What he gives them are the words of our lesson tonight. And, and actually, there's more to them. The little blue box is actually the second half of what he states. Uh, we're not going to dig through those this evening. I'm actually saving those for part of the daily devotion. Again, I'd like to encourage you, if, if you want to hear more about the value of death, uh, there's a way to sign up for those daily emails. And, and even in that, there's a value that he talks about. And, and it'll be referred to simply as a, a phrase that we often use, dying to one's self. And we'll dig more into that for the rest of the week. It's the first half of what he's saying. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it won't bear fruit. He's talking about the value of death. And he does it in a most intriguing way. He introduces it as a way of speaking about glory. He's saying, what's about to happen is going to bring glory to me. And if it brings glory to me, then it's going to bring glory to God the Father. And what he's doing is he's connecting that moment, taking us all the way back to the first time the Lord said, ashes you are and to dust you will return. What he's talking about is the fulfillment of the plan of salvation, how God could ultimately give us the escape plan out of death. He's talking about a suffering later in the week. He's talking about being nailed to a cross, the most cruel and painful way to die. To, uh, painful way to die. And, and my question is, how, how, can on earth, how can that possibly be glorious? Death itself, is, it's just, it, we don't associate it with a good thing, especially to die that way. How can that be such a glorious value to death? And that's what the Lord starts to explain. It's because it would be his death. And of all the people that have died on the face of the earth, his death is the one that's most unique. His death is the one that is most valuable. There's a simple principle which we heard in that psalm reading that I think sometimes is overlooked that just shows you how valuable this death is. You see, the world wants to claim that uh, it values all life equally. And I'm sure you've heard that again and again, especially in the recent years. Um, but what I've observed is they're not honest about that. Uh, they don't value life equally, so they don't value death equally, if you will. Um, for instance, a child who's been born uh, to the world's way of thinking is much more valuable than a, a child that has not yet been born. Uh, despite the claims that uh, uh, your skin color shouldn't matter, it, it genuinely does, at least if people are being honest. Uh, there are certain skin colors uh, based on people's biases and racism. Let's just call it what it is. They think more or less of various people. God doesn't think that way. Uh, despite all of our laws and all of the, if you will, the allowances for people who have physical challenges, most people I talk to tend to treasure the able-bodied individuals of this world far more than they treasure disabled people. You see that when they park in handicapped spots where they shouldn't. Or you see it when they park next to a handicapped spot. And I've seen pictures of that where people can't even get out of their, their handicapped van because somebody's been so uncaring and so unloving. 
It's part of this broken world, struggling with one another. So what you hear is the message, we don't value life equally. And of course, the big one is, oftentimes society itself values younger people more than it values the elderly. And the thinking is, is pretty logical, but it's unfortunately also quite sinful because younger people contribute more to society, whereas us elderly people contribute far less to society. And so if you understand correctly, the way the world views the value of life also has consequences in how it chooses to value death. God doesn't do it that way. God values all of us equally. He loves us all desperately, so much so he didn't want to spend a moment of eternity without us. Doesn't matter how tall or short you are, how thin or thick you are, how young or old you are, whether you can walk with two legs or you have to be pushed around a wheelchair, God doesn't care. Because within each of us is a soul, an eternal part of our existence that God wants desperately to be with him now and forever. But in order to make the math work out, God said there has to be an exchange of value. And that's what the Psalm 49 passage was about. You see, there's only one death that could equal the value of every person's life. And that's Jesus' death. Even if you could find a perfect person in this world, if they were born in this world without sin, and they could live every moment of every day without ever saying anything wrong, without ever thinking anything wrong, much less doing anything wrong, if that person were to stand before God, God would say, well, your life is worth your life. It's a perfect life, so here. You get the green light. Go. But that isn't how it works when it comes to Jesus. His life is worth every single one of us because he's not only human, perfectly so, but he's also God, perfectly so. It's only this life that could actually equal the lives of everybody who ever has or ever will live. The issue is, though, that in order to exchange that value, there's one small caveat. It has to take place through death. And in order to illustrate that, Jesus uses this interesting diagram. He chooses the wheat plant. He says, unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it gives up its life, no life can actually come out of it. And I, I was always curious as I wrestled with this, why did he choose the wheat plant? And then as I did a little more research, I go, well, duh, this is a no-brainer. There's something about the wheat plant. I don't know if you knew it or not, but uh, within a wheat plant, uh, individual plant, there's usually eight to uh, ten uh, husks or, or group of seeds, if you will, heads they call them. And within each of those heads, there's about 40 individual seeds. So if you do the math, each individual uh, stalk of, of wheat has somewhere between three to 400 new kernels. Uh, and if those fall to the ground and die, and again, doing the math, in the end, you have somewhere between 2,400 to 4,000 new wheat plants. And it just keeps going on and on and on like that. There are very few uh, crops that are as prolific as as the wheat plant is. So it becomes the perfect illustration, the perfect metaphor for what God did through the death of his own son. The only way that that life continues on is if that seed falls to the ground, dies, and then springs forth new life. That very same thing happens with the wheat plant, happens with human life. The only way any one of us is given our lives back a more blessed earthly life and ultimately an eternal life relationship with God has to take place through death. 
And that's all that the Lord wanted to share with those Greeks who were visiting Jerusalem to celebrate the Old Testament ways of looking at life and death. What he offers to them is a better message, a more memorable, if you will, lesson on love, because what he's explaining to them was he was about ready to go to the cross to give them back their life. But the only way that could happen is if he first died. Tell you what, when you get home tonight and you look at your calendar, whether it's on the wall or on your desk, um, I really, I guess, don't care whether it says what holiday it does at all. Because whether it says Valentine's Day or Ash Wednesday, it gives us an opportunity to actually on this evening really celebrate the true holiday, the true holiday of love, the Lord's love and his willingness to bring value to death and in that way give us all back our lives. This is our story, life. It looks different for each of us. Family, work, hobbies, favorite places. We all have fears, secrets, regrets. If we are painfully honest, we believe there must be more to life. The life was meant to be more of an adventure and less like a repeat of yesterday. There are times we feel lonely, unloved, when we wish life would just be different. Sometimes the burden is too heavy. Our own mistakes haunt us. We feel stuck, helpless, as if the chains of yesterday are holding us captive and the key has been thrown away. There has to be more. God never meant for our life to be like this. He never designed for us to live alone, to be stuck in regret, for life to be mediocre. God wrote a different story. Despite the fact that we ignored him and looked the other way, he refused to give up on us. He saw our hurt, our mistakes, our regrets, our sins. He was unwilling for our story to be like this. Jesus knew the cost and left heaven on a mission. He cared for the broken, brought hope to despair, upset the religious elite, and loved people regardless of what they've done. But there was a twist in the story. It made no sense to those around him, but made perfect sense to God. He was betrayed by his friend, dragged away, put through six different trials, beaten, mocked, sentenced to death, and crucified on a cross. His friends had betrayed, denied, and deserted him. Why? Because Jesus was writing his story to rewrite ours. A beautiful exchange paid for our sin he rose from the dead and gave his power to us. He traded our mistakes for a fresh start, our fears for strength, our mediocrity for a great adventure. His story changes our story.